Oliver, one of your earliest books was uh, Britain on the Couch, A Low Serotonin Society. Can you tell me what you meant by that? What is a low serotonin society? Well, the idea there was that uh, we are, you know, despite being richer compared with 1950, we seem to have higher levels of the commonest emotional problems like anxiety and depression. And serotonin is associated with uh, depression and low levels of serotonin uh, particularly. So my idea was that the society we were in was depressing and consequently we had lower levels of serotonin, to put it very clearly, crudely. So when maybe our parents' and grandparents' generation would have had a stoic, just-get-on-with-it attitude, is there something, are you saying, that's chemical about the fact that we're not so good at that stoicism or are we just victims of a different kind of society that we live in compared to them? Different kind of society. So there are really two shifts that have happened since the Second World War. There's what happened between 1950 and roughly the arrival of Mrs. Thatcher in the UK, uh, which was a period in which uh, individualism greatly increased and collectivism reduced. So individualism is where you define yourself through your education and your career and you have to be, you know, your own person, you know. Um, whereas in the collectivist society, which of course exists throughout much of the rest of the world today, uh, your identity is conferred upon you by your family background, uh, your position in the family, your gender, and of course the, the, the significance of, of your clan within the wider society, you know, your, in, or in, in advanced societies, your social class, uh, all those kinds of things. Now, uh, collectivism in the collectivist society, you don't uh, achieve your identity and, and sort of have an, an adolescence and break away from your parents. You, your ambition is actually to be like your parents. And consequently, there is much more obedience to authority. There were many oppressive features of collectivism, which the 1960s blasted away um, uh, so that, uh, you know, respect for police authority figures went down the drain and uh, people started letting it all hang out and doing whatever they wanted and the divorce rate uh, doubled every decade between 1950 and 1980 uh, with some fairly disastrous consequences but of course you know there was good and there was bad there was some people in oppressive marriages who got out of them on the other hand there were a lot of people who had because you know the main cause of emotional problems or vulnerability to them is our early care, the early years. Mm. People whose early years had put, made them vulnerable when placed in this situation of being able to choose, of being able to supposedly be whoever they wanted to be, actually uh, were at much more risk of, 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 of becoming very distressed. And uh, the, the, the problem being that, you know, if you, if you, you know, marriage actually, as you say about stoicism, marriage does require you to put up with your partner. Yes. <laughs> and them to put up with you. And, yes. uh, you know, requires, and is also to a certain extent a practical contract which enables you to have a home and to, to care for your children properly and requires you perhaps to accept the fact that you have to make sacrifices. For example, you can't sleep with just anyone you want. But in the, the, the 60s, values and culture uh, encouraged everybody to do whatever they wanted. Uh, and, and, of course, People who'd had good, solid early care thought, hmm, 
mm, well, on the other hand, maybe I'm not can't do whatever I want because I've got to, you know, I've got to be responsible. And other people who'd had insecure childhoods uh, were more likely to go off the rails. And there was also, at the same time, the other thing that changed was a massive increase in the amount of social comparison between 1950 and 1980. Uh, advertising took off uh, in the uh, Anglo world. There was much more advertising than in mainland Western Europe. And consequently, advertising is constantly trying to encourage you to, be, to, 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 not, you know, to want things that you can't have, uh, perhaps, and to always be someone other than who you are. That's the essence of advertising. And during the period between 1950 and 1980, that was consumerism took off. Uh, there was the rise in, in you know, uh, technologies that enabled there to be all these cheap consumer goods. And uh, we became, uh, very, you know, keeping up with the Joneses mm. became, became a phrase that came into, into common parlance. And we became gradually more and more obsessed with how we were doing compared to other people. Part of that, of course, starting in the education system. Prior to 1950, most of the population didn't really give it care, care a toss about where they, how they did in, in exams. Gradually, it became more and more important to, to define yourself through exam performance in the wealthier parts of the society. And more and more of the population were becoming wealthy. So uh, the, the education system advertising, a whole lot of changes in the society made everybody compare themselves much more to other people. And that actually is one of the characteristics of depressed people, is that they're constantly worrying how they're doing compared to other people. And actually, just on that, a recent phenomenon now is that you'll have well-known people and celebrities coming out and talking about their depression. Yes. Now, I understand exactly, you know, what they're trying to do, that you normalize this, you remove the stigma from depression, you'll show that anybody can suffer it. But I did wonder if you're actually depressed yourself and you're looking at Catherine Zeta-Jones saying she's got bipolar too. Does that make you feel personally better or do you say, well, it's all right for her? She's beautiful, she's rich, she's successful, she's got a husband and two kids. What do you think is the benefit of celebrities talking about it? I, I think there is a benefit in the sense that it is trying to destigmatize mental illness and I'm, I'm all in favour of that. What I find deeply objectionable and utterly unhelpful about the use of celebrities in the media, Stephen Fry recently did a program about how he's got bipolar depression and he's had a doctor telling him that he had a genetically inherited brain disorder which would never change and could never be cured and could only be managed guess what through pills and so what happened during the 1950s onwards was there was an increasing use of medication to control this mental illness to control what is essentially a socially created problem and also created, of course, by a vulnerability in the early years. And uh, it's, it, it was actually the drug, co- you know, the whole thing was ultimately driven by the drug companies through their pharmacists, the psychiatrists, who are essentially um, doctors who've been trained to use physical methods like pills or even electric shocks to treat what are regarded as being physical brain disorders. The, the reality is that it is absolutely not scientifically based. Firstly, the Human Genome Project has been quite unable to find any 
explain the difference between people who have depression, other mental illnesses, and uh, ordinary and people who don't. There, there have been no genes discovered, contrary to what everybody thinks, and that's what my book, Not in Your Genes, is all about. Um, uh, on the and what my book that that book also shows is that the early years are extremely important, along with um, along with obviously social trends. Uh, in in explaining in the, as, as the true explanation of of, 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 of people who have become depressed or emotionally distressed. Um, so you know it's it's incredibly unhelpful to have these endless programs about people like Stephen Fry, famous people, um, basically presenting them as hopeless cases. Who, who the best that can be done is that they can be given uh, sort of a last class solution like drugs actually don't work for the most part. You know, uh, 75% of the effect of an antidepressant is a placebo effect. It's, it's the belief that it will have an effect is what is causing any effect there is. Only about a, a quarter of the effect is actually on the effective level of, of serotonin. Yeah, but in Britain um, on the Couch, you were quite positive, I thought, about SSRIs and well, how beneficial SSRIs they were. do have a place in that if you're, you know, and I, I wouldn't want any listener who's hearing this to, to, and taking SSRIs to, to feel upset about this. I think if you feel that an antidepressant is having an effect on you, then good for you. Um, but don't look upon it as a cure and don't imagine you're going to have to take them for the rest of your life. Mm. What I'm saying in Britain on the Couch, which I wrote in 1997, a long time ago, mm. uh, was that antidepressants could play a role uh, in the short term, if you're having a, a major depressive crisis, perhaps you should take antidepressants for a bit. But what, what we all need is therapy which uh, explores what went wrong in your childhood, uh, preferably also is make, you know, acknowledges that social processes are important, such as, for example, there are an enormous number now of women in their 30s and 40s who are single and can't find any men. And if they're university educated, that's not surprising because there are four women for every uh, three men coming out of university. <laughs> so there's a, actually a, a radical shortage of men. And you know, if I, I have clients who are in that category of women, um, and you know, I, I recognise fully that the social process that's, that's maybe depressing them, but also their childhoods will have come into it. And what therapy needs to do is explore. You know, get to the bottom of what really happened in your childhood. On top of that, it needs to be you know more than once a week, and and they need to form a strong bond with the therapist who needs to support them and needs to give them the care and 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 support that they didn't get when they were tiny, when they were very small. So I gather you're not too hot on the current fashion for CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy. I, I think it's a disgrace the way that. Uh, CBT has been portrayed as effective. Insofar as it is effective, it maybe reduces the symptoms of anxiety and depression in about 40% of cases. I don't believe it's actually as high as that. But uh, even if it was 40%, what has been proven is that people who have had CBT two years later are no, you know, if they've had it for anxiety or depression, are no... uh, more likely to, to, to be cured than people who've had no CBT at all. So mm-hmm. in other words, it is, has no effect whatever two years later. Whereas the 
kind of therapy I was just describing that goes into your childhood and forms a strong bond with the, with the therapist has been proven to have long-term effects. The other big craze at the moment is for mindfulness. Yes. Um, what's your view on that? Well, mindfulness, I mean, we've known for, for decades, actually, that yoga and meditation are good for your mental well-being. And I personally, for example, for 30 years, have done yoga morning and evening for 10 minutes, only 10 minutes, including when we had small children, I managed to do it. You have to incorporate it as part of your routine as, as much a thing like brushing your teeth or putting on your pajamas. You know, it's just something you automatically do in the morning and evening. Um, and it does help. Of course it does. But the idea that it can cure depression or anxiety is nonsense. And mindfulness has been, there was recently a big uh, look at all 125 studies of mindfulness showing that they've massively oversold and overclaimed what it can do. Its effect is not nearly as great as has been claimed by its advocates. And in fact, you know, I'm all in favor of mindfulness in the sense that it's encouraging people to meditate. But, uh, you know, and meditation is not some kind of alternative therapy sort of cranky thing. It's a well-proven, scientifically proven thing to be helpful. But it's only limited help. It, It calms you down and it relaxes you in the short term. You've got to get to the bottom of the causes of problems. And we need, as a society, for example, uh, you know, I was saying that things changed between the 1950s and 1980s in some ways for the worse. Well, it got even worse after the 1980s as a result of Thatcherism, Reagan, Reaganomics, the, 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 the neoliberal free market economics. has been a catastrophe. And, God, I'm talking to you in Ireland. You know what it's done. <laughs> I know. Uh, and I've often felt as well that some of this mindfulness thing and the medication, the mass medication of people is a political issue because, yes. you know, it's making you be passive. Yes. But maybe you've got a right to be angry and depressed about the way your life is because Absolutely. society has changed. Because we live in a society where a tiny number of people are fantastically rich and the rest of us have to work our rocks off in order to make them rich. Uh, and, you know, combine that with the fact that we've become a shop Till you drop, it could be you is the lottery's you know one in forty million chance of winning mantra. Um, uh, you know a cons- you know a credit field consumer junkies. That's who we've become because of Thatcherism and Reaganomics. I mean it was it was going on before that, of course it was, but it's accelerated massively. So we there's this combination of us all being compulsive consumers. Uh, without ever enough money to be able to satisfy those needs. And anyway, as everybody knows, consumption gives us very limited pleasure. Mm. Uh, Once you've bought the new car, television, whatever it is, new clothes, yes, they give you a short-term buzz, but they very quickly wear off. Uh, The things, if you're going to consume, consume experiences like holidays or football courses or things like that um, for your children. But, uh, you know... The idea that buying commodities uh, is going to make you happy is, uh, is, is, the, is, the, is the lie that we are all brought up to believe. Um, and uh, my, the idea that mindfulness can solve the depression that results from feeling uh, you know, you know, that you haven't got enough money, that you're a loser. Most of us are ended, end up being made to feel like we're losers, that ghastly American expression. Mm. Uh, which came in in the mid-1980s. Um, uh, you know, these kinds of... Uh, uh, a last 
short-term, quick-fix things, which are only introduced by the governments in order to shut people up, try and put a smile on your face as you go back to work in your supermarket in the short term, uh, along with the antidepressants. Uh, you know, that isn't the solution. The solution is, is the twin solution of changing the structures of our society so that they resemble Scandinavian ones, in which there is, you know, the richest person is only being paid, say, 10 times more than, than the person working at the bottom in an organization, that kind of level of equality. Uh, but that's what we need. And then we need to redistribute the wealth and use it to ensure that parents can properly meet the needs of their children in the early years and provide uh, you know, lots of professionals to support people who are having difficulties. Um, and just going back to society and women, um, I'm always very struck by that book, The Women's Room by Marlon French. I don't know if you've ever read it. Yeah. And it's Yeah, these educated American women stuck then in these stifling marriages in the suburban world. Yeah. And the one of the women who was the most intelligent of them had a nervous breakdown and she bitterly said that um, they gave the women Valium and the blacks heroin and that was how they <laughs> kept them down, you know? Yeah. And um, I think you said in Britain on the couch that women are over are prescribed medication in far greater multiples than men are. That's right. You know, and do you think is that a consequence of with something we often talk about on this program, the unintended consequences of feminism and how it just all got I a bit twisted? We, you know, I think the kind of feminism that we got as a result of the nineteen sixties was absolutely disastrous uh, compared with Scandinavian feminism. Our kind of feminism is what I call men in skirts feminism in which they become aggressive, competitive, they, they develop men's bad habits, smoking, drinking too much, uh, maybe taking drugs. Yeah, and they call it lad, ladettes, ladette culture. Ladettes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you don't get that in Scandinavia. In Scandinavia, the whole idea there was the feminism that I'm old enough to remember in, in the 1970s, which was all about men's groups and men changing, men becoming more like women, not women becoming more like men. And that was Oliver James, psychologist and author of many books, including Britain on the Couch, Affluenza and Contented Dementia.